Well, good evening, and I uh, hope everybody had a restful afternoon. I got about, sat in my chair and got about 15 good minutes. That's about the best, the first 15 minutes. You know, after that, it's all just academic. So it was the first 15 minutes, and I got them in, so I feel good. But, uh, you know, um, just mentioning, speaking of Rachel and Megan, we had the opportunity. We were Skyping May, uh, Rachel at lunch as we were eating. We turned our laptop around, and we were eating and talking to her the best that we could. And, uh, well, I encourage you guys to pray for them. Uh, and Linda and I had a little conversation about it and regarding the missionaries and you know, just what actually goes into it when you commit yourself to serving the Lord. You know, you have a lot of good news. You feel and are impressed with the love of God, with the compassion of God, with the grace of God, and you feel like you have so much to offer. And then you bring it, and that's not really what the people want. You know, oftentimes they just want some kind of a rescue. Um, like when Jesus fed the multitude and they all followed him. You know, I kind of sensed that a little bit. Rachel, in her talk, you know, there's some disappointment, I think, in the way things were going. They're excited about it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong. But it made me think about it because I know Linda and I often, or a few times back, have endeavored to do some things. And it didn't turn out the way we thought that they would. And it could be very discouraging. And I think of not particularly Rachel and uh, Megan, we do think of them, but in particular the missionaries who will be there for a long period of time, who are vested in this. And oftentimes they have something to offer, but the people really want something else. You know, So pray for them, for their endurance, that they don't, that they, that they as our brothers, athlete brought the music that they keep their eyes focused on Jesus because you know something people disappoint don't they but the Lord Jesus is faithful well with that in mind um, speaking of prayer why don't you uh, if you would please turn in your Bibles with me we're going to go ahead back to the Lord's Prayer and uh, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer but we're going to for this and you know it's I I, I'm not the one that made this up, you know, and a lot of the outline that I found is not something that I have personally put together, but in many ways I've seen the, uh, the work of others. Other people had done the hard work, and I just gleaned from it. And we're going to look at a lot of um, these things, but the, 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 the um, Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, and we'll just read through this all the way through verse 15. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. This morning we got together. We said, and by the way, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be making some 
statements, establishing some principles, and then these are tools that you're going to use for your own study and hope I can uh, instigate you to do some further study. But we don't have enough time. We could go on and on and on in the Lord's Prayer. It's an endless, it's an, it's an endless discovery that we find as we study in the Lord's Prayer. But this morning we said that there are two spiritual activities which are unceasingly part of the believer's life, which are vital to the spiritual maturity of the believer. And that first principle is studying the word of God. It's a great pillar, and it holds up the believer in his daily living. Studying the word of God is vital. Studying the word of God is God speaking to us. This is how God communicates with us in his word. And we also indicated that the second principle or the second activity of a believer's life would be prayer. And prayer is essential because prayer is our speaking to God. And in many ways, prayer is our acknowledgement and our affirmation of the sovereign rule of God in our lives. So these are the few things we talked about this morning. In Acts chapter 6, in verse 4, you remember the situation as the early New Testament church began to grow, and then there became there some uh, issues as to serving different people, the Greeks, the Hellenistics, and and uh, so they would, they would uh, institute some deacons and get some people to do some work. But for the disciples, the disciples would say, we will give ourselves continually to two things, prayer and study or the ministry of the word. These are essential elements for a believer's life. The two things are composite, and they, it's a composite interchange between God and man. And so the Bible speaks that we are unceasingly to be involved in both of these. Apostle Paul says pray without ceasing, right? We're instructed to pray without ceasing. And uh, praying always with all prayer and supplication. These are very familiar things. Familiar comments and statements from the scripture. The New Testament tells us that we are in everything by prayer and with thanksgiving to make our requests made known unto God. These are not new principles, but what we're going to discover is how do we do that? How do we stay in prayer with the Lord? In the New Testament, it tells us that in everything we're to pray. We're praying at all times. We're to be studying the word of God as much as we possibly can. We're to be meditating on it, giving it out at all times. These are the obligations of the, believing, the believer's life. If prayer is something we are to do unceasingly, the fact of the matter is, is we want to know how to do it. You know, because prayer is a total way of life, I've come to feel and be convinced that it's important that we understand it. Prayer is an open communion with God, and it goes on at all times. I know in my own life, I enjoy that. In the, in the career I have, I get to meditate on the Lord. I don't do it all the time. Sometimes I'm going somewhere else. But when I finally get back on track, what a refreshing thing 
it is. Now, we want to notice in our model prayer, remember, this, the Lord Jesus had instructed us. He had instructed, uh, particularly, he was speaking with the disciples. He was instructing them in their religious life, in their giving, in, um, in their tithing, in their, in their giving, in their prayer life, He's in their material life. He was instructing them. And in verse 9, he says, in this matter, after this manner, look at verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. The word uto'un in the Greek, it, it literally means thus or therefore. It could be translated along these lines, pray. And so we take this as a model prayer, not necessarily something to rotely say over and over again repetitious. Now, in our study, we noted this morning that the major thrust of our prayer is to focus on the glory of God. That, to me, was revolutionary in the first place. You know, in Christendom in general, the thrust of our prayers are focused on who? Meeting whose needs? My needs. I, I, me, my. And we clothe it in my this and that. And we, but the, the Bible teaches us that our major thrust it focuses on the glory of God. And it's fitting, isn't it? Because that's what prayer is supposed to do. It's not trying to get God to, to agree with me. Prayer is it's not trying to line God up with what I need, convince him what I need. Prayer is myself affirming the sovereignty and the majesty of God and, and taking my will and making it submissive to his. That's truly what prayer is. In John 14, 13, we talked about it this morning. The Lord Jesus would say, when you ask anything in my name, he hears us. And why does he hear us? In order that the Father may be glorified. Prayer is not for you to get what you want or me to get what I want. It's to put the majesty of God on, on display. So, as prayer focuses on God, you know, this prayer gives us a good outline with that. This morning, we gave a very simple outline, not original with me, but I thought it was very good, and I'll just go over that outline with you. Now, today, we're going to be talking about the invocation, and in the will of the Lord, on Sunday next week in the morning, we're going to see the elements of, the, of God's glory in this prayer. And then the second part of the prayer is we're going to look at man's need in the evening in this prayer. But the very, very simple outline we see here, looking at the verse, we see our Father who art in heaven. That's God's paternity. He's a Father. Hallowed be thy name. That's God's priority. Thy kingdom come, that's God's program. Thy will be done, God's plan. And then we go, give us this day our daily bread, that's God's provision. And forgive us our sins, that's God's pardon. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that's God's protection. And then finally we saw, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, we see 
God's preeminence. And that's what our prayer ought to involve. His priority, his, his paternity, his priority, his program, his plan, his provision, his pardon, his protection, and his preeminence. Well, let's look at the first phrase, the invocation. Our Father who art in heaven. You know, if you think about it, that's probably the most common term we use in our prayer, isn't it? Father, 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 Father. Prayer begins with the recognition that God is our Father. That's a tremendous truth, you know. Now, you know, what does it say to us? What does it mean that God is our Father? You know, well, first of all, we want to look at the, verse, the word that says our Father. Our Father has reference to a believing people, right? You know, the liberals will tell you that God is the father of the universe. God is everybody's father. And, you know, when we pray our father, first of all, there's a negative side of it. And it kind of hits the liberals right in the hard spot, right? Because we distinguish him as our father, not as every... Now, in a sense, God is everybody's father. In a sense, he is. In a sense, it's true. That he is everybody's father. In the sense of creation, God has created everybody. He is the father of all. In Malachi 2.10 it says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Yes, God has created everybody. In that sense, yes, God is the father of everybody. In the sense of creation. But when it comes to a relation... God is not the father of everybody. In that sense, God has created us. We are one. In Acts 17, uh, in, 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 uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in, in 1 John 3, John verily characterizes two families, the children of God and the children of the devil. In, uh, in uh, John 8, 44, uh, the Lord Jesus would tell the um, the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So there's a distinction there. When we pray this prayer, we're not talking about just the God of creation. We're talking about a father who we are in a relationship with. So there's a negative side, and then there is the positive side. The Apostle Paul makes that clear distinction in light of the children of darkness or the children of light and the children of darkness. Jesus himself is abundantly clear about the fact that there's a God, a Father, who has a relationship. It separates us from the rest. There are two families. Our Father eliminates a world of unbelieving people. That's the negative side of it. And that ought to concern us. And the positive side is this. Our Father... It's an affirmation of an intimacy with a God who wants to have a relationship with us. The Old Testament Jews or the saints of God in the Old Testament, they understood something about the fatherhood of God as well. And there's no question to that. They understood it more as we spoke this morning in terms of a, a, of a national relationship. He was a, 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 the nation of Israel. They understood him not so much in intimacy of a relationship as a personal father. 
You know, um, I think as time went on, and as we see here, as we talked about this morning in Jesus' first sermon, we see that the Jewish people over time had lost the concept of the Father of God, as, of God as a Father. They lost that concept. And, and God had become more and more remote to them in many ways. And we know that even can happen in our own contemporary life too, doesn't it? If we lose that intimacy with him as a father. So God became more and more remote to them. And I don't think it was God who moved. I think it was more them. They moved. They, as they moved away from the worship, as they began to redefine their system as a tolerated sinfulness, and they, they would cut themselves off from God's fatherly care. And then time came where they assumed that God was some distant person. He was not a close, in a close relationship. They developed a wide gulf. They lost a sense of God's fatherhood. And, and even in their national way. So there was a, a distance that they made. And then the Lord Jesus steps into the picture. The Lord Jesus comes in and he utters the term, our father. And I'm sure some of them went, <gasps> I mean, they gasped because they had, they had distanced themselves from that type of a relationship with God. Our father, it was shocking to them. And, 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 and honestly, until the Lord Jesus came, I don't think that men really understood, even in the Old Testament, I'm not sure if they really understood the intimacy of God and the relationship that he wanted to have in that way. Let's look back, and we're going to see some of the Jews in the Old Testament and how they saw and what they thought of as God as a father. They knew God was a father. They understood something of what it meant. So let's turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 64. We're going to look at a couple of passages to kind of help us put into context what they thought of Jesus or what they would think of God as a father. Isaiah 64. Now, you have a statement by Isaiah here in Isaiah 64 uh, regarding the people of God. And uh, the people of Israel, you know, they, they had, the Bible, it says that they had sinned grossly. Go down, Isaiah 64, verse 5. It says, you meet him who rejoices and does righteous, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. They recognize it. We have sinned. In these ways we continue, and it says, and we need to be saved. They said we sinned. And, and then in verse 6, it begins to describe it even a little further. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and it goes on and on in verse 7. And there's no one who calls. We don't even call on your name anymore. We don't even acknowledge you anymore. Who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You've become remote. You're distant. And you've consumed us because of our iniquities. But then look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our what? Our Father. Right? 
They recognized, even though there was sin in their lives. You know, I have a few children. And sometimes they don't do what I would like them to do. And sometimes I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. And there may be some violation in our relationship. But does that make them any less my children? They're still my children, right? Though our relationship may be severed in some way, they were always... And this is how the Jews understood God and his relationship. They knew him as a father. It was a desperate situation, and yet they would reaffirm the comforting reality that God is a father. You know, because a father takes care of their children, don't they? And I know in our culture, in our society, those things are confused, aren't they? And it's sad in this world that it's become very confusing. It's a very, very scheming tool of the devil to destroy the family structure. And it does great, great damage. But the reality is fathers take care of their children. And they understood that. And they understood something of the concept, God is a father. And, you know, and there's another passage. Go with me over into Second uh, Chronicles. Or, no, before we do that, before we do that, we're not, there's, there's um, what was it I was looking at? We can sum it up in a sense this way. The Old Testament saw God as a father in five basic ways. In five basic ways. The first one was they realized and they saw God in the terms as a begetting father. He was a begetting. They saw him as begetting. And now I do want to go to First Chronicles. Go to First Chronicles, and we've talked about that. First Chronicles chapter 29. And this is the prayer of David. First Chronicles chapter 29. In verse 10 it says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. He was, in a sense, a begetting father. Who is the one who begat the nation of Israel? It was God. God was the one who, and they recognized that through Abraham, that God was the one who established Israel. So he was a begetting father. He is the God of Israel. And, you know, that's a title. It's a title, the God of Israel, our Father. In other words, the one who has begotten us. So when they looked at, when they thought of God as a father, they thought of of him as one who is a begetting father. Secondly, they saw him, they saw the nearness of God. A father is one who's in a, in, a, in a family relationship. He's not like an uncle or a cousin. It's not a distant relationship. In other words, he's, he, they, he was a father. He was someone who was near. Look in Psalm 68. Go with me over to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, I was meditating on this the other day. I was looking at it, and it is so 
full. It is so wonderful. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Look at verse 9. You, O God, send a plentiful rain. He sends rain. You confirm your inheritance. Look at verse 13. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like wings of a dove covered. And um, in verse 15, a mountain of God is a mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks, and it describes God in his majestic role. It says that he has chariots of thousands and ten thousands. But in the middle of the whole thing, look at verse 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows. When they saw God, they saw the nearness of him. They saw him as a father of the fatherless. As he's a father, he puts us in a family, and he... He puts us in, isn't that great? Just to think about it. He puts us in a family. A father of the fatherless. They knew the majesty of God. They understood something of the remoteness of him. But they also knew that he was a father of the fatherless. So we saw, they saw the nearness of God. Thirdly, I believe that when the Jews were in their concept of God as a father, they saw him also as a father and his loving grace. A father and his loving grace. Turn to uh, Psalm 103 while we're in Psalms. And I've only, taken, I've only taken the top of the iceberg on some of these, and that's probably why I got a little scattered here, because there's, there's so much that we can cover when we think about the fatherhood of God. Look at Psalm 103 in verse 13. 103, 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. That's his loving grace. They saw him as a father with loving grace. They saw him as begetting, a begetting father. They saw him as a father who was near. And they saw a father who was, who was full with loving grace. Another aspect that the Jews would see in the Old Testament was they would see God, the Father of God, in the terms of his guidance. And these are aspects of a father. And if you are a father, these are good characteristics, aren't they not? A be you're, you're a begetter, right? And then you're near. And then there's that loving grace. But they saw his guidance here. Look in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31. In verse 9, Jeremiah 31, verse 9, it says, They shall come with weeping. I love this. They shall come with weeping, and with supplication I will, what? I will lead them. He's a father who guides. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a what? I am a father to Israel. So here we see him again as a father in terms of his guidance. God says, I'll guide them. I'll lead them by the river. I'll keep them in a straight way. I'll make sure that they don't fall away. I'm their father. I will guide them. And that's how they understood. And there's one other way that I think they understood God when they, they thought about him. They had to see that because, you know, God was their father. Because he was a begetting God, he was a near God, he was a God of grace. Because he guided them, 
They understood that he was a God that they needed to obey. He was a God that they needed to obey. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And these are all very familiar passages to the Jewish nation. Deuteronomy 32. My Bible's all stuck together today. And go down with me to uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. It says, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? And look at what he says here. Look at what Moses, this is a, a song of Moses. He says, do you, not thus, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who what? Who bought you? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? So what? The idea is, if he did, you ought to obey him. Do you requite the Lord, O foolish people? So they understood him as a father, and perhaps it was in a, in a, in a more general way. They understood him, um, not so much in a relationship, but it was in a general national way. But then as time went on, and then I was just reading uh, some, uh, uh, some studies on that 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew or, you know, those 400 silent years. And I think a lot of it was then that they began to develop their own righteousness, that they began to develop their own system. And God became further and further, and he became more and more remote. And it wasn't, again, like I said, it wasn't them who, it wasn't God who moved. You know, people will say, well, where was God when such and such happened? He's always been in the same place, hasn't he? He's always been in the same place. Well, go back to the Sermon on the Mount with me. And what we see here in chapter 6 or further on, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus begins to reiterate this concept and to, to establish this concept of God as a father. Go over into chapter 7, a very familiar portion of scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened, right? And so, you know, why? You know, why is God going to do this? Why is he going to hear us when we ask? Why is he going to, when we knock, why is he going to open the door? When we look for things, why is he going to help us find them? You know, why is he going to do this? Well, it goes on in verse 9, because this is what God is like. In so many ways, Jesus is reestablishing in the mind of the children, in the mind particularly of the disciples. This is what God is like. Or what man is there among you, he says, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you, earthly father... If you, being evil, know how to give to your children good gifts, how much more will your Father 
who is in heaven, give good things to them who ask. Give good things. Here they are again introduced to the fact that God is the beneficent, caring, loving, sustaining father. Just as a father in the world ought to be. Just as a father in the world takes care of his children's needs. But even more. Amen? They had a remoteness. As we go back to see what Jesus says in chapter 6, they had a remote idea. And in their culture, and in their time, they kind of got caught up with it. Now you have to put it into context. The children of Israel at this time were under dominion. It was the Hellenistic period. And they were occupied by the Greek world. And you know, the Greeks had a lot of mythology going on, didn't they? There were a lot of myths. There was a a Greek god called Zeus. Have you ever heard of him? How many of you have ever done any mythology reading? You know, it's pretty interesting to see the mind of these people. And by the way, you know, more often than not, when men create their own gods... Usually their gods are a lot like them, because that's all they know, right? But in Greek history, or in this portion of the, the, uh, the era that, of, that Jesus is speaking in, the, the Greeks had a god called, and they called him Father Zeus. And in connection with Father Zeus, I'm going to read some of this. It came to mean Lord. Father Zeus meant Lord or ruler. You know, it, it didn't have any intimacy He was just Father Zeus, right? And uh, Zeus, he was a pretty rotten god, from what I understand. I don't know a lot about it, but I heard he was a pretty rotten god. And uh, there was a nice god, and his name was Prometheus. And this is, they really believe this. His name was Prometheus. And Prometheus said... That the, he saw that there was no fire on the world. There was, there was no fire. And um, men were cold at night. And, you know, fires are good for a lot of things. You know, for keeping you warm, marshmallows, s'mores, you know, those kind of things, right? And so Prometheus looked down on the world, and according to the Greek le- legend, he said that there was no fire, and men were cold. And, and uh, so Prometheus, uh, he... He gave the world fire. Well, Zeus wasn't happy about this. And uh, uh, the Bible says, and Father Zeus got so mad at Prometheus. And um, he took Prometheus out into the middle of the Adriatic Sea. Found a rock sticking out of the water. And he tied him to the rock. And there was this, I don't know what it was, some kind of a bird or something that used to come and rip the liver out of Prometheus every day. And then he would grow a new liver. And it was day after day. And at night it was cold. And in day it was hot. And Prometheus was tied to this rock. Well, that's what they thought of when they thought of Father God. That was their concept. And Jesus steps into the middle of this. And he says, your father is not like that. He's a begetting God. He's a near God. He's a loving God. He's a guiding God. 
He's a father who ought to be obeyed. He uses it in a new fashion. And he injects it into something very, very rich, something special, an intimate thing. Not just the word that he says, but we shall see what he brought God to men, right? He didn't just say it by word. He didn't just introduce God to us in his words. He ultimately brought God to us intimately by what he did, didn't he? And by the way, you know, when Jesus prayed, he always used the word Father. And there's probably some 70 times that Jesus prayed. And he always used the word Father, except for once. There was only one time. And that's when he would say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only in sin bearing was he separated from the Father. And only then did he not say Father. All the other times there was that intimacy, that relationship was expressed. And only in that one temporary moment it was broken and sin bearing, did, he, he didn't address God on that term. Listen, when we go to God... When we say father, we're not talking about some father goose. You're not talking about anybody else, some beneficent person who wants to lay golden eggs or some silly thing like that. Mother goose, whatever else you think. You're not talking about, on the other end, some deity who is totally unconcerned, who is distant. You know, a father that, that, that is only a father in a sense of a relationship. You know, a ruler. That the, the one thing in my house that I don't like at all is if I walk in and the kids jump because they're afraid of me. If, usually if they do that, it's because they did something what? <laughs> right? And if you see God in that way, oh, God, forgive you, right? He's a, he's a beneficent, loving personally involved, absolutely intimate father who loves you and cares for you. And I'm going to close it with this. Listen, what happens when you know that God is your father in this way? What is it that happens? I have a few things. First of all, I think it removes fear, doesn't it? Love casts out what? Fear. When you see God as a loving God, it casts out fear. Secondly, it provides hope, right? That's what fathers do, don't they? They provide hope. Thirdly, it ends loneliness. It ends loneliness. We see in the world the devastation of fatherless homes are, you know. So thirdly, it ends loneliness. Fourthly, it does away with selfishness, right? Because he is our father. He's not my father, right? He's, it's the community of believers. He's our father. Does away with selfish, uh, selfishness because he's our father. Fifthly, it provides infinite resources. You know, we went to um, Dick's Sporting Goods because uh, 
had to get some gear for the kids for baseball. But Aaron will show you. He's got um, some strawberries from sliding on baseball. Well, you know, that stuff's expensive to get that gear. <laughs> and fortunately, we had some coupons, you know. But as I looked around in the sporting's good place, I thought to myself, man, it'd be nice to get them that. We looked at the bats, and there were some bats. We picked one up. I think originally it was, what, 100 bucks. But there was another bat right next to it, $300. I said, man, I wish I could get him that bat. You know, I'm kind of limited to what I can do. He did get a good bat, though, but you want to know something that's really not the bat, right? <laughs> anyway, I'm limited to what I can do. But we start out this prayer, our Father who art where? In heaven. We have a heavenly Father who has eternal resources. I mean, he has eternal resources. It provides infinite heavenly resources. Now, I'm not going to ask you to start asking God to give you Cadillacs and stuff like that. We don't do that, right? But you know what I'm saying. He meets our needs. He has heavenly resources because he's our father in heaven. But also, even with all of these, when we see a God like this, you know, it ought to invoke in our hearts a spirit of obedience. You know, a spirit of obedience. It demands obedience. And lastly, it declares what? Wisdom. It declares the in eternal wisdom of God, doesn't it? He's not like me. We were watching rugby and they were asking me about the rules. I don't know about rugby. You know, but God knows all things, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He declares wisdom. So, honestly, to begin our prayer, our Father who art in heaven, it indicates my eagerness to come as a child beloved of a loving Father to receive all his love, all that his love can possibly give to me. Isn't that a wonderful approach that we have? That is our invocation. Our Father. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we study and we continue to um, dig deeper into your word, we thank you so much for this design of prayer that you've given us. This even helps us to know more, more truly and, and more securely what kind of a God that you are, the character that you uh, uh, own and, and, and who you are. We thank you that you are a father who cares for us. And we give you the thanks. We pray, Father, that you would be displayed in our lives in all ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.